You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I've been doing a lot of thinking in general, but somewhat about you. Uh, That's kind of weird, but go ahead. It it does seem kind of weird. No, but it's going to a good place. (laughs) I enjoy you. I I think you're a quite enjoyable person. I've also learned a lot about you and with you and through you. (laughs) This is getting really strange. Go on. Um, So sometimes I feel like as a classroom teacher or Mm -hmm. classroom teachers, we often see... Edu- professors of education is more of like, uh, how do I say it nicely? Are we, in an ivory, to... are we in an ivory tower? Is that what you're? Yeah, there's always the idea that, you know, you in your, your fancy uh, ivory tower don't have the, you're far removed from the classroom. So you don't have that, like, the ability to see the, the practice of education. Yeah. I don't. I just want to put that out there. I think that um, hopefully most teacher educators are aware of that perception. And I know I felt it when I went through my teacher education program and started teaching. I felt like a lot of the things we did didn't relate to the actual work I had to do day in and day out as a teacher. And um, it's easy to talk about ideas, but teachers have to do stuff. They have to do a lot of stuff. They have to you know, initiate discussions and help students further their thinking and they have to do all forms of assessment. And so that's the work that's that's what teachers do day in and day out. And so I think it is a challenge for teacher educators to find ways to help pre-service teachers grow in that way. I know, I, I'm going to take your um, comments to heart and share them with all my colleagues. So if you get any terrible tweets at you on... <laughs> oh my goodness. That's a- angry professors. We've met some great teacher educators. Don't yeah. get me wrong, but there is that stigma, and I just wanted to address it. And I, I hope that it's coming from a good place. And I know that you also work hard to, you know, be a part of you know the classroom experience too. Well, you know, luckily there teachers. are there are a lot of people doing work towards making sure that teachers are really prepared in the work they have to do. And luckily, we have a great guest today who's going to talk to us about. Um, specific ideas related to core practices that can help teachers, pre-service teachers grow and hopefully continue to grow through their career. And so welcome to the podcast, Dr. Francesca Forzani. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. And you're at the University of Michigan, correct? I am. I am at an organization called Teaching Works, which is part of the University of Michigan School of Education. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in education, and then you can go ahead and tell us a little bit about, you know, what you do at Teaching Works and what Teaching Works is. So I started my career as a high school English teacher in rural Mississippi. Um, This was back in 1998, and I was a Teach for America Corps member. Um, So I had relatively limited training, although I think the training is better than people give Teach for America credit for, but back in 1998, it we really had a long way to go. I would say now at TFA, but so that's how I got got into the field. 
Um, and I spent four years teaching high school English in the town of Greenville, Mississippi. And while I was there, I became really preoccupied with the problem of how to supply quality teaching to American classrooms at scale. And what I mean by at scale is that, you know, I came through this program, Teach for America, which at the time was smaller than it is now. It was pretty small. Um, and it was, you know, then as now recruiting primarily graduates from elite colleges and universities to go into classrooms. And while I thought that model was fine, I didn't think it was a solution to supplying quality teaching at scale, like I said. So, um, you know, there are more than 3 million uh, classroom teachers in this country and lots and lots of kids served by those teachers. And we need a lot of teachers. This, the, the profession is large. And, you know, that that problem of how to get a great teacher, a really skilled teacher into every classroom was really preoccupying to me. Um, and after four years in Mississippi, I left the classroom and came to graduate school at the University of Michigan, really interested in that problem. And to make a pretty long story short, um, I, I met my now colleague, Deborah Ball, um, who was an experienced teacher, teacher and teacher educator here at the University of Michigan. And she and I started talking about how training for teachers needed to change if we were going to supply quality teaching at scale to U.S. classrooms. And one of the things that we landed on pretty early on was that the, just the, the idea that the prevailing kind, the prevailing ways that teachers were trained in this country were not very focused on, um, as you said, Dan, the kinds of things that teachers actually have to go out and do. And it's not the case. So people get confused when we say that and people still do. And they say, well, what the heck do you mean by that? Right. I mean, we, we do student teaching. We send our, our candidates out and have them observe in classrooms and they spend a month or they spend a whole semester student teaching. So what do you mean that teacher training is not about what teachers have to do? And all that is true. Um, but the problem, as we saw it, was that there wasn't a really clear sense of the specific practices, the actual activities of teaching that people needed to get good at while they were in teacher education and while they were in student teaching. So it was all too possible for a, a novice teacher to go through student teaching and never get really good at anything specific because nobody really had a sense of what it was that they were supposed to get good at. I can just think back to my student teaching experience as a good example. You know, my program was set up well, and I had some very good professors at, at the teacher education program I went through, but I did feel like there was an element of kind of, and I know Deborah Balls used this term, chanciness to getting certain skills during my student teaching. Um, one of my original placements, uh, well, so I was switched because I wanted to be at the same school that my eventual future wife was that I wanted to be placed <laughs> in the same school. It ended up working out. It was a good plan, I guess, right? Um, wait, wait, that's how you, that's, that's yeah, how you to weird. We met in teacher education classes. And then when during student teaching, I, I was placed at a different school and I told them I like didn't have transportation there and I had to be at the other school, but that was not true. I just wanted to go to the same school she went to. So, <laughs> Um, See, teacher education is successful at something anyway. Yeah, it's magic. <laughs> no, that's engagement right there. It's yeah, there you go. And so, um, but it's so there was a bit of happenstance to that situation. But I, I, and I worked with a very, you know, nice 
caring teacher, but they didn't help me develop my skills over the course of time. I kind of got thrown into the classroom. I figured things out on my own, but I, I felt like they lacked the structure and like infrastructure even for helping me to grow. And so I totally, I definitely get what you're, um, the point you're making. I also should point out to our listeners who aren't familiar with your work and Deborah Ball's work is that you, you all have had a big influence, um, on the field. Your, your work's really getting a lot of recognition and I'd say notoriety in the field right now, because people are looking at how do we kind of, you know, address these large scale issues of, of teacher education. And, um, so can you tell us specifically about, I guess the big idea we're going to talk about today is core practices. And that's one of the key terms that we use to describe this whole line. Can you tell us about what that is? Yeah. So as you say, there is a whole movement now, particularly in the past, I would say five years in the direction of what you're, you know, core, what you're calling core practices. And sometimes people use different terminology for it. Here at Teaching Works, we refer to high leverage practices and other people say core practices. Some other people also say high leverage practices. But it's, you know, in general, it's all the idea that teacher education should really clearly be grounded on a small set of teaching practices that people should be able to get pretty good at before they can take responsibility for a classroom. There are some people working on core practices inside of specific subject matters. So we've got some colleagues at the University of Washington, for example, who work on this in math and in science. Um, at Teaching Works, we work at a we work inside of specific subject matters, but we also work at a general level. So I think what we're best known for is identifying a set of nineteen teaching practices, which we call our high leverage practices, which we argue are really critical for people who are going to teach any subject matter in any grade level to get good at. So our list is meant to be general. Can you give us a couple examples of high leverage practices and how those would be um, enacted in a teacher education program? Yeah. So some of the ones that come to mind are um, eliciting and interpreting individual student thinking, which is really about developing the skills of really being able to hear the ideas that kids have and, and hear the resources that kids bring to school. Um, leading a whole class discussion is one we work on quite a bit. It's very, very difficult for, particularly for a novice teacher to lead a discussion, but we think it's pretty important to the kinds of goals we have for kids these days. That's interesting. Cause I don't think I've ever taken a class on leading class discussions. Um, and it's definitely a skill, but it's definitely something that, um, I would have liked more training on. Yeah, I think most people would say that. It is really hard to lead a discussion, right? I mean, even for experienced people, I think it's really hard. It's scary right. and it's difficult. Yeah. Um, and we have others like um, modeling content, giving clear explanations, designing assessments. None of them are shocking. Nobody looks at our list and says, where the heck did you come up with this? Right? It's all things that any experienced teacher, for the most part, would say, yep, these are the kinds of things I have to do every day. It's just that no one has identified the list yet. How did you land on the 19? Um, was it just category, like, you know, throwing a bunch on a wall, categorizing them, and then figuring out that these are the ones? Were there any that, um, anything that you might, that's not on there that um, you think might also be important? I'm curious as to how we got to the 19, I guess, is the. Yeah, <laughs> so you're asking two questions. How do we get there? And is there anything missing? Yeah. <laughs> How we got there, long story short, um, we did um, start by brainstorming every single thing we could think of that a teacher would have to do. When there were lots of people involved in that, there were a whole bunch of faculty members here at the University of Michigan 
Um, and then at various stages, we involved a kind of cross-section of practicing teachers from across the country who came and spent time with us and vetted the list. They added stuff. They took things away. Um, but in the end, we had a list of about 100 practices, which is way too many if you think about how short most programs of teacher education are. And we felt like to be realistic, we needed to get the list to under 20. Um, and then we kind of, we weren't sure what the number was, but we settled on under 20. Um, and we developed a set of criteria for winnowing the list. So some of the things, some of the criteria on that list were um, wherever possible, there should be evidence that the practice has an impact on student learning. Like in the case of leading a whole class discussion, um, there is evidence that teachers who conduct class discussions and do it well actually do help kids learn more than um, teachers in classrooms who don't do that. Um, we were looking for practices that, um, that again, were useful across grade levels and subject matters because our context here at the University of Michigan is that we train people for lots of subject matters and lots of grade levels. We were looking for accessible practices and practices that were accessible in the context of initial teacher education. So to clarify what I mean by that, if you think about a practice like, um, or practices of starting out the school year, like how do you have the first day of school? What do you need to do on the first day of school to set things up well? We had a whole podcast really on this. Yeah. Really important, but also very hard to assess in initial mm -hmm. teacher education because we often cannot get into schools right away at the beginning of the year, and it's hard to assess novices on that. So important as it is, those practices did not make our list because we were trying to be – we wanted to be able to hold ourselves accountable for helping kids – helping our candidates learn these things. I agree. When I look at your list, it makes a lot of sense. And so there's an interesting dynamic between what is – you know, the things that we could come up with some kind of standardized list that's general enough that it applies, but also specific enough that we could do something about it, but also not with overly standardizing the field, right? And I think it's interesting because like I could see it being very hard to say, well, what should teachers do on the first day of school? Because when we had this podcast, we listened, you know, we had a bunch of a panel of teachers and they all had such different and unique ways of starting their class. But I think they all reflected like their own personalities and aims. And, you know, keeping those components of, of, of who teachers are throughout, I think is possible with a lot of the stuff you guys um, have listed. And I don't think you have to lose any of that. Can we talk about a specific one? Maybe we could do the eliciting um, student, uh, uh, individual students thinking. Yeah, so we're doing a lot of work around that one right now. So that it is a deceptively complex practice. So, you know, at, at face, it involves asking kids questions about what they're thinking, listening to the answer and thinking about what kinds of really interesting ideas or perspectives the child is bringing to the subject matter that you're asking him or her about. Um, and that includes what kinds of misperceptions they might have, but also just what are the kinds of personal experiences they're bringing to that subject matter? What kind of lens are they bringing to it? What are, um, you know, how are they interpreting whatever the, the text is or the problem is? And how could that, you know, how could that benefit the rest of the class? And, and you know, what might be in some cases, getting in the way of that child moving from what he or she thinks to a new set of understandings. Um, and then kind of going back and asking additional probing questions to understand further. And one thing we find with that practice is that a lot of people, including ourselves, 
kind of want to see it as an assessment practice. Like let's diagnose what's going wrong with a kid's thinking. And we think it is really important to not see it that way, but to really treat it as a, a learning practice and a listening practice and a chance to just get inside a child's head and dwell inside the child's head and, and just kind of come to understand how he or she is coming to the subject matter. And it turns out to be a pretty difficult practice to teach novice teachers, I think for the most part, because understandably, they tend to want to dive right into kind of doing something to help the child. And it's really mm -hmm. hard to get them to slow down and just be with a child's thinking for a while before kind of moving on. There's an article Pam Grossman wrote, and she said there was kind of three components that, that you can often use to help you know, people look at these practices, different core practices, and grow. And she talked about representations, which is like looking at the work practitioners have done, whether it's watching a video or whether it's, um, you know, reading about a case or looking at an artifact. And then she talked about decompositions, which is breaking down those complex part, parts into the specific things you want to look at, which I would guess would be like a high leverage practice where you just look at that component of the teaching and then approximations. So how did like, is that sound kind of like the way you guys have done it? And, and then yep. what do you do to help people grow in those different ways? Like how do you use representations like videos? So first, absolutely. Um, Pam is a, a good colleague of ours and we use her framework quite frequently and sometimes work with her. Um, we were actually in your state, Dan, of Texas um, earlier in the week. We were working at Texas Tech University in Lubbock um, on this exact practice um, with their faculty there. And used a set of activities that fall right into Pam's framework. So um, one of the things that we did there, which we do often, is we have, um, we've developed what we call student profiles in relation to specific texts in, in English language arts and problems in mathematics. So I'll stick with my subject area, which is English. Um, we'll take a text, like the, the what we used this week was an excerpt from Sandra Cisneros' uh, novel, The House on Mango Street. I love that book. It's a great book. And we, we, so we focus on a particular excerpt, and we, we've developed these student profiles that are kind of um, secret. So the only person who would know the profile is the teacher educator. And the profile says things like, um, this particular student has read the passage and comprehended the passage, but is confused about these two points and is doing a terrific job analyzing the text on these other two points and has a real strength at being able to refer to the text to support what he or she is saying. So it's kind of things like that, the, the profile of the student. And then we have the teacher educator practice with a novice teacher or a teacher candidate or an intern, whatever you want to call a student teacher. And they practice having a conversation where the teacher candidate is having to elicit thinking from the, the student, and I'm using, I'm using air quotes here because the student in this case is the teacher educator who's kind of enacting this student profile. And the, the novice teacher in that case can practice the skills of drawing out the thinking of that so-called child to understand what his or her strengths are with regard to interpreting that text and what, if any, weaknesses that child has. So that is um, something that I think Pam Grossman would probably call uh, an approximation of practice. So it is not practice, right? The, the novice teacher is not out working with an actual child. It is an approximation of the work that the, somebody would have to go do. And it's a very slowed down version. So you could imagine in real life that kind of interaction happening in the context of a whole class discussion or maybe inside of group work. 
this is a really slowed down version of a kind of interview that you might have with a child uh, in a in a classroom. So that's one thing we do. It's it's interesting because there there's always common themes to good pedagogy. I think that just goes across so many things. And and whenever I'm at a good PD or I'm I'm talking about a um, an idea or theory makes sense, so often it's really about positioning students as active learners. I mean, it go. I always feel like things go back to that is that they are cognitively not just passively taking things in, but they are actively um, engaging in ways and teachers are helping them to, to further and deepen that engagement. So makes a lot of sense. I feel like, because um, we active learning has been coming up quite a bit, I feel like whenever we use active learning in our podcast, Dan, we should scream. Mm. It's like our <laughs> secret word from Pee Wee Herman. Active learning! Yay! <laughs> We can delete this part, but I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, I, but it would be okay if we started to do that. Well, we may have to do a Twitter poll to see if people want us to scream mid-podcast or not. Like, we don't <laughs> want to scare someone who's listening to podcasts on their drive off the road, right? So that's really helpful to explain it. So if if teacher educators or teachers are were trying to implement these ideas, what advice would you give them for starting? Because it could, you know, 19 high leverage practices, it feels a little overwhelming, but I would also think this applies to in-service teachers, right? Could practice these same skills in ways that pre-service teachers do because we're all growing and getting better continually. So coming back to them. So what advice would you give for both pre-service and in-service, you know, teacher educators or teacher leaders for, for doing some of this work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the first thing I would say is it's really important to get clear about not just the name of a practice, but what the insides of a particular practice are. So if you take a practice like leading a group discussion, there are so many different things that a teacher has to do to enact that practice well. You know, you have to launch the discussion. You have to support students in getting their ideas out in the open. You have to help students talk to each other so that it's not just a back and forth with the teacher. You have to make sure that the discussion goes somewhere. We've probably all been in rooms where a discussion just flounders. You can't tell what's being accomplished in the discussion. Um, and you have to bring the discussion to a close. So that's just one illustration of kind of the, the many parts that are inside any of these practices. And I think taking the time to slow down and unpack a practice and think about all of the skills that go into it are really important because even sometimes experienced teachers, I think, sell themselves short in terms of the complexity of the work they're doing. And I think everyone benefits when we think about, you know, what the sub practices are and the, the different skills and the decisions that a teacher has to make to carry out any one of these things. And once you've unpacked the practice, you can start kind of rebuilding it and thinking about um, how you do it well and what the resources are that would help either a novice teacher or an in-service teacher do it better. It seems like if you were in charge of PD for a, for a district, that you'd probably pick a couple to work on for the year just because there's a lot of them. And that just like that example, that one leading discussion is so many different parts that dealing with that or, or, or um, training on that or discussing that in one single PD session is just not going to work. Um, but, you know, it'd be better to, to pick a couple and then focus on that. I think that's right. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been really helpful and, um, you know, I hope people are able to see some connections to to their own to te for teacher educators see connections, but also just if you're a teacher out there, I mean, maybe take a look at the these high leverage practices and think about what are ways you can grow, your colleagues can grow, and in the specific skills that help students learn. Um, so, just thank you so much, Francesca, for for joining us today. Um, is there a spot online where our listeners can find your work or find more information about you or your articles that you've written? 
Yes, you can go to www.teachingworks.org and everything is there. Um, and again, I really appreciate the chance to chat with you both today. Yeah, this was great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for coming. Thanks again for having me. Listeners, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you write us a five-star review, then we will read it on the air. And my name is Dan Krutka, and my Twitter handle is at Dan Krutka. And my name is Michael K. Milton, and my Twitter handle is at 42ThinkDeep. And until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. Thank you.